0: Welcome to Something to Eat and Something to Read, a podcast by me, food writer Sophie Hansen and bibliotherapist, psychotherapist Jermaine Lees, two women who firmly believe we shouldn't go for too long or too far without something to eat and something to read. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Kitchen to Table, a kitchen and cooking specialist store based in Yamba, New South Wales, but also very much online and in non-COVID times hosting cooking classes and culinary tours. We're going to hear more from Meredith of Kitchen to Table a little bit later in the episode.
1: But first, today we're going to be talking about psychological thrillers, which is a very well trodden (laughs) path for me and a very new one for Sophie. Uh, It's... The psychological thriller world, I think, is a world that reminds us that we skate on very thin ice in the everyday and what happens when this ice shatters and we're left with a world we no longer recognise.
0: Yes. And then we're going to read our letter, um, which is also about the turmoil of change and looking for calm among chaos. But first, I really want to know, Jermaine, because... Listeners might not know that we take it in turns to choose our books for this podcast. Um, why psychological fiction and why do you love it so much and why did you choose this one for our episode together?
1: Well, I have had a long relationship with psychological thrillers starting, mm-hmm. I think, in my teens Um and I'm not sure if you got into the whole uh, horror movie teen phase. Not like I at did, all.
0: Sophie. Not at all. I was more like John Hughes, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club. I couldn't, I just <laughs> couldn't cope. Even Doctor yeah. Who was too scary for me. My brother used to watch Doctor Who and I found that too scary. Oh, okay. So, yeah, no, that's why I'm so interested. So go on.
1: Yes. No, that's all right. I was, I was also 16 Candles and um, <laughs> Pretty in Pink and, all, and The Breakfast Club. But there's this other part of me that uh, needed something a bit um, darker and after the horror movie phase, I then discovered Stephen King's books and actually at the time had no idea why I wanted to read them and scare myself. Um, And it wasn't until I was putting together um, my book with Sonia, Reading the Seasons, which is, um, as you know, the whole of letters between us about our reading lives and and bibliotherapy, that I really started reflecting on why horror or psychological thrillers were such a big part of my adolescence. And I actually realised that it was a way of me experiencing really scary emotions um, in a very safe way and that I had a very stable home life and nothing terrifying it happened and i think that really scared me and i wasn't sure how i would cope with that and there was something about um reading and and it was always wanting to read about the normal family who end up in some horrific situation it wasn't the police procedurals or the terrorist action type books it was always about people i could relate to or an emotion i could relate to and then taken to the extreme mm. and then discovering that that was actually survivable. It's funny because I kind of then put it down to that was a teen angst thing and, um, you know, which I'm sure many people will have gone through the same um, thing as me. But then I started realising that particularly stressful periods of my life I would reach for a Patricia Cornwall or a Val McDermid. Um, Again, the emotional horror was really appealing and I I think it's actually it gives some kind of shape to when I'm feeling quite tumultuous and anxious it gives a sense of order to it Mm. and then it came up again just a couple of weeks ago Sonia and I were being interviewed for the Hong Kong International Literary Festival and Sonia's in Melbourne and I'm in Sydney so this is actually a great example of why bibliotherapy is so unique we were asked what um have you read during lockdown how is reading helped and so we both had the same experience although admittedly Sonia's had many more lockdown days than I've had in Sydney but our answers were so different so Sonia had gone for the expansive books that took her into a different era and a different to Europe and colour and glamour and food and expansive stories and I suddenly realised oh when we first went to I reached for, there's a book called The Therapist by Helene Flood and um, The Maidens by um, Alex Michael- Michaelides. Interestingly, both those books have therapists as their main character and then their whole lives unravel and how do they cope with that. So didn't quite consciously realise it at the time, but I think there might have been an element of the darkness to come. Um, so Yeah, so thrillers really do seem to give shape to an unvoiced fear. And um, I'm also, and so perhaps when thinking about choosing the unheard for this podcast episode, uh, there was, it was also due to the timing that I was Mm. going through a bit of a thriller stage again a few months ago. (laughs) And I chose Nikki French because um, I realized how often food comes up in their stories mm. and I thought that was a really interesting thing to explore but I'm also really aware that I foisted this whole genre on you so now I'm really interested to know what this first experience was like
0: uh yeah well look as I said it's it's definitely not a genre that I um have had any experience with really like I, I'm not um I don't seek out that kind of thriller. Um, genre in books or films or I mean I'm open to them but um and it's interesting what you're saying about Sonia because I think I might have fallen more in her camp like during lockdown I did reach for books that enlarged my world as well and took me somewhere completely different and different smells and tastes and um and one of the books I'd, I reread actually during lockdown was um, one of my all-time favorites which is the, Mount of, Count of, the Count of Monte Cristo by Dumas and I, I just love the romance that I read that when I was a mm. teenager and I just it's just I was completely blown away with it and I loved it. And it took me to another place and it took me back to my childhood and all those things. So um, I think it's so fascinating, as you say, mm. the kind of books that we turn to when we need something, when we need to kind of get um, taken away from, I guess, lockdowns or stress or whatever in our day-to-day mm. life. But um, sorry, what were you going to
1: say? It's, I was going to say it's, uh, the rereading thing is really interesting too, isn't mm. it, that when we reach for a book that um, we've read before. And do you think that you do that in stressful situations that, I mean, I know you've got, you go for the expansive books as well, but is what comfort does the rereading bring you during stressful times? Oh,
0: it definitely, um, like I, I'm, I, I've actually got on my bedside table at the moment, a book to, that I'm going to reread called brother of the more famous Jack, which I just love. Have you read that one? Oh, yes. Um, I just absolutely yes. yes, adore. And, and yeah. do you know what, I'm not going to read the whole book. I'm just going to read Chapters and I love those Mm. scenes in that chaotic kitchen. And so I don't necessarily always reread the whole book. I just kind of open it and read a section, and I can instantly, um, I'm implanted back at that table or in that scene. Or I used to, as a kid, reread The Twins Uh at Sinclair's, Edith Blyton's book a lot. Anyway, I just think, Mm. yeah, I think rereading is really interesting. And there's a level of guilt involved with that because there's always so many new books that we're supposed to be on top of and reading. And you think, oh, is it really. It's a bit indulgent to reread, but it does um, it does take you back and I, I, it does work for me. Do you reread books ever, Jermaine?
1: I do sometimes um, and I think it is, as you say, I will reread sections or I have a little quote book where I write favourite quotes down that really strike a chord and I'll sometimes go back and just read a quote mm. Um so I think that is when reading becomes the therapy, isn't it, or where it becomes the, mm. um, yes, it's it's a different than just reading to escape or reading, you know, for that experience. But actually you're reading to, like with the rereading, you're you're doing that to give shape to the stress and to take you back to a very comforting, safe place, I'm imagining, mm. like particularly for you, a kitchen table. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Mm. I, um, I'd i never thought about
0: it actually before I started this podcast with you. I'd never thought about why we reread things or parts of things. But um, let's move on to our book, The Unheard, which mm. I actually enjoyed immensely, Jermaine. Like I, I flew through it. <laughs> I read it in I think three or four days on my Kindle um, and I, I would recommend it to anyone who has been in a little bit of a reading slump and I know a lot of people have through lockdown and pandemics mm. and been watching a lot of Netflix, this is just, it grabs you from the get-go, doesn't it? Like it's a really gripping, fast-paced, mm. beautifully crafted book. So um, I'll just give you a little bit of a <clears throat> um, the story of the book if you guys haven't read it. Uh, and spoiler alert, if you're halfway through it, I'm going to tell you what happens, parts of it. Um, so it's about Tess, and Tess is a <laughs> single mum, a three-year-old Poppy, and she and Poppy's dad, Jason, separated about a year before this book started, um, and she's just started a new relationship with a man called Aiden. And the book opens with Poppy, who's usually a really bright happy child bringing home a disturbing drawing from a stay with her dad and it's of a woman falling out of a tower or a building and when Tess asks her about the picture Poppy says he did kill her and obviously Tess is um, anxious about this and worried and things begin to sort of unravel from that point onwards and Poppy's behaviour deteriorates and she starts wetting the bed when she didn't before and using bad language and Lots of different things. And Tess begins to worry that somehow there's a connection between her daughter Poppy and something she's seen and the recent death of a young woman who fell from her apartment um, a couple of suburbs away and it's based in London. So her fears take over. Nobody believes her. She starts to distrust everybody and then we see what happens from there but as I said I flew through this book it's definitely not my normal genre genre, but I thought it was really well written and I didn't realize that the author is actually two people that Nikki French is a husband and wife writing team Sean French and Nikki Gerard and this is their 23rd book and it's a whole world that I never knew existed so that was fun to discover as well.
1: Yes, no, they've been writing together since 1997 and apparently they have four kids. I actually remember seeing them come to do an author talk back in the, oh, must have been like 2000 or really early days. It was just so interesting hearing how they'd created this voice that they don't see as their own separate voice but they've actually created this third voice in their marriage that's Nikki French. Wow. Um And... Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Mm. That whole separate persona almost. Um, but I was listening to an interview uh, in preparation for this podcast, and um, Sean was actually saying that, or well, they were asked why psychological thrillers. And he said, these books are a hidden biography of uh, all the things that Nikki and I have been felt troubled by and needed to explore. Mm. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. And uh, actually, the idea of that hidden biography and actually this goes into your rereading thing for comfort and how it takes you back to that place but also shows you how far you've come in some ways and Virginia Woolf once wrote that uh, her, if she wrote her reading of Hamlet uh, every year, it would be her autobiography because it would show how much, more Shakespeare seemed to talk to her the more she developed as a person or the more experience she had and mm. that's the other magic isn't it of rereading that you're a different the book doesn't change but yet you're a different person when you come back to read it and it can leave a completely different shape given mm. that what you're going through at that time or what you've learned
2: mm.
0: well about shapes I think if I'd read The Unheard when my Alice was three um it would have left a different shape mm. on me because i would have felt that acute anxiety and worry about a young child and them not being able to really express themselves and not distinguish what's going on in their head and what they've actually seen but i have a 14 year old daughter mm. and so i'm kind of i've sort of moved on i mean i still worry about her obviously but it's not it's different you know so i mm. read it from a place of probably more mm. um comfort comforting distance perhaps
1: yes and you i wonder whether Um, it would have been a book that either of us would have wanted to read when we had three-year-olds actually,
2: Mm.
1: because yes, the shape it left on me was just that acute reminder of how scary it is to be the parent of a small child Mm. and how out of that, that when do you overreact? When do you underreact? How do you know um, how to keep them safe or if they are actually okay? And, and it, it brought, um, I thought this quote, um, it just reminded me how easy it is to slip from being concerned to paranoid or how easy on that scale of mm. what's a normal reaction and what's an out of proportion reaction and, and and that feeling then of who, how can you trust anyone? And I, that quote, there's a quote, I'll just read um a thought snaked its way into my mind, sharp and poisonous. It made me feel physically sick and at the same time it was so obvious that I had almost laughed at myself for being such a fool. Had I always known and chosen not to know? Was I that woman who turns a blind eye? And when I read that, even though she's not talking about what I'm, what brought up for me, um, but what it, what it brought up for me was that reminder of um, as a mother when you make a the wrong call. And I remembered um one of my kids uh he and he wasn't a toddler at the time. He was more than I t- in primary school and he complained of having a really sore stomach and I kind of ignored it a bit and just was like, Oh, I don't know if you if you're just trying to get up going to school or I've actually got to go to work. I haven't got really time to deal with this. I'm sure you'll be right. Soldier on, off to school. And then um that night he just got worse and worse and I think the other kids actually said to me, "Mom, I think he's really in pain. And <laughs> I was like, oh, God, really? Is this like a false alarm? And anyway, Stuart took him to hospital and lo and behold, it was appendicitis. And that shook me mm. because then, and he was fine and he got operated on, there was no burst appendix or anything like that. But the aftermath of that was this awful feeling of was that so obvious that mm. I just didn't want to look and know. And what could have happened if I if we hadn't have reacted and that just for me brought up Tessa's feeling of I think there might be something wrong but I don't know if there is and and no and I don't know how to find uh, that baseline again of being able to make a good judgment mm. uh, yeah a hundred percent
0: empathise with that and I think we've all got a story similar to your appendix story um anyone who's sort of come through those early years with kids but and I think bringing it back to the food I think that's what this book does so masterfully like it brings up that level of tension and Tess is just riddled with self-doubt and anxiety and you really feel that and then there's a moment where she makes beautiful um like rice pudding or buttered crumpets and tea and they sit on the couch wrapped in a blanket and they mm. you know so it kind of builds up this tension and this anxiety and then it brings it down to to earth with a moment that we can all picture ourselves in and also i guess says how well mm. Tess actually is caring for her daughter like she's she's meeting her needs she's comforting her um and i think i love I love the role of food in these books. and I never would have thought that a psychological thriller mm. could use food so cleverly. Um, what do you think about that, Jermaine? do you agree that the food mm. is 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 really um, thoughtfully placed throughout the book?
1: Oh completely. And actually, as I was saying earlier, it's something they've done in their other books too, and it was when we started doing this podcast that made me think of another um, book of theirs I read the land of the the lying. it's gone out of my head now the lying room or something I think it's called anyway um where it was a lot of tension and then the main character would be cooking and I would notice that I'd feel really relaxed and then really think oh god she's so good at cooking and that's really (laughs) and it just it wasn't jarring but it was it was a real tempo change Mm. and that's what got me interested in thinking about it more and bringing this book up with you but before I go on to saying what I thought about the food in the book, I had also read that um, they're probably unsurprisingly they're both real foodies, um, Sean and Nikki French. Uh, Nikki was saying that she actually draws inspiration from the Victorian writer Elizabeth Gaskell because she wrote in the middle of domestic chaos. She had soup on the hob, a child under the chair, and a baby in her lap, and. Nikki said that's where the real writing happens in the middle of life's domestic Mm. messiness and um, that their version of domestic noir is about complications taking place in bedrooms, gardens and kitchens. Um, and often there's a denouement at a dinner party but and also sean loves to read with a glass of wine at his elbow in the garden in the evening so i thought you know you'd get on quite well with him wouldn't you? yeah
0: well uh, you know it's funny during the um we had a, a big drought a couple of years ago and um my favorite time of the day i would go up and i'd kept one patch of our garden with the veggie garden alive everything else is just bone dry and i would take mm. my book up and like a nice drink and i'd water the garden at that golden hour and it was yeah So when you mentioned that he liked it, I was like, yeah, me too. I get it. You know, there's something really special about that. But, um, (laughs) yeah, you can clearly tell that they appreciate food, even the way they describe. There's a scene where Asian's making um, pizza, isn't there, and he, you know, he's working the dough. um, Mm. And it's clear they
1: understand how to write really well about food, which um, I appreciate it. (laughs) Yes. Actually, I've got that. I I pulled that quote out as well because this is, yeah, emotionally what it did to me the way they write about food I'll, I'll read it out mm. actually I was sitting at the kitchen table ragged with exhausted emotions but I like seeing him at work it soothed me he'd already made the dough and it was rising soft and spongy in the bowl now he was making the sauce chopping onions and lifting them into the pan where they sizzled squeezing garlic adding a tin of tomatoes um and I really felt soothed reading that too and I could hear the chopping and the sizzling and the Um, and it really you know that that scene happens after where Tess is really on the edge Mm. you could see you could I can almost see her exhaling in a chair watching him and I felt the same way and I think the way they use food to create an atmosphere really stands out um, for me Mm.
0: and and how they use it to sort of um, really say so much about a character and and slow the pace down or build it up again and um, and, you know, that moment where they're having a really difficult time and Poppy, uh, Tess's anxiety is, like, through the roof, but she doesn't want Poppy to feel it and she wants Poppy to feel nurtured and comforted. So um, mm. they have that beautiful breakfast in the garden. And she says, I woke Poppy and we ate breakfast in the garden, flaky croissant and strawberries as if it were a Sunday or we were on holiday. Um, I love that line. You know, it's like, yeah, Tess, mm. you're, you're doing so well in amongst this horror. Like, <laughs> I really liked that.
1: Yeah, and actually, it wasn't until you said that, and you said it a bit earlier again that the food that what Tess cooks for Poppy shows us that she's actually sane, that she's fully able to mm. mother and parent and without the words having to be said. And I actually hadn't realized that until you said it. But of course, like if they're eating fish fingers and peas together, or and she's sewing a costume for her, or she's weeding the garden, there's moments of, um, whether it be cooking or doing small things that kind of show us that she's not how other people are viewing her and i hadn't actually picked that up but mm. i think they've you're right i think they use the food to to really say where she was at
0: yeah i think so and the more that the police don't believe her and the more that jason her ex husband is threatening to take custody of poppy way or all these things you know her life is unraveling she's still keeping her domestic, her bubble with Poppy in that little flat with that Mm. beautiful garden, she's still keeping that on an even keel. Mm. And And the the conservatory
1: kitchen. I know.
0: It sounds just heaven, actually. And I think, yeah, I really love that and I love that all the mentions of food that involve Poppy and Tess are such kind of feminine foods. You know, it's like strawberries and croissants and rice pudding Mm. and mangoes um, and buttered toast and maybe... That's also us learning to see Tess and Tess learning to see herself as a single woman and she can just eat whatever she wants whenever she mm. wants. And if she and Poppy want to have rice pudding for dinner on a Sunday night, they're going to do it. And Jason, her ex-husband, who I imagine would have been like, "Where's it's the yeah. stoke, and, you know, because he was quite overbearing and sort of this toxic masculinity yeah. kind of vibe coming off him. So I kind of I kind of like that she was just mm. sort of flexing that muscle a little bit of, you know what, we're going to just cuddle up on the couch and have croissants. <laughs> I liked
1: that yeah yes that's a really good point that there was even though she felt so lost and weak at times actually yeah she did flex a muscle in other small ways and she didn't give up did she I mean the whole being seen as paranoid she kept going Mm. she knew she was that protective that lioness protective mother streak was yeah really well portrayed wasn't it but thinking about um food as an atmosphere i I also that and obviously won't say what happens at the end except to say there's a dinner party (laughs) well a formal dinner and i thought that was done really well with tension building of this beautiful Mm. table that the two wine glasses and the different the best silverware and elaborate food described you know even the bowl of olives with the wine beforehand and yet I felt sick mm. and then I think it says um uh, Tess describes not being able to eat because she felt so sick and um I, th- I thought that they conveyed that emotion and that atmosphere of that dinner table extremely well what did you think of that final dinner?
0: Oh uh, yeah I, I completely agree and I, I think a meal can become its own form of theatre, don't you think? Like even the the very first book we talked about Mm. in this podcast, Mm. Heartburn by Nora Ephron, there's that scene um, at the end. I mean often these books do kind of culminate in this sort of dramatic Last Supper kind of a situation and where, where, what's her name? Oh, my God, I keep saying um, Meryl. What's the main character for happen? Rachel, 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 Rachel cooks this sort of final meal before she leaves him, and um, and, and here it's this sort of it's all building up to this this meal, which is as you say really uneasy. And I think it's so fascinating how writers kind of set the scene and they get all the characters in place, and it's it's has a sort mm. of theatrical feeling about it. Um, and and that idea of a meal must be such a great tool for writers. And I one of my favorites, um, MFK Fisher who I think I've mentioned many times before how much I love her. She's a food writer. Um, Mm. And she also wrote um, fiction, not much, but she did write some fiction. And um, one of her short stories by Kitchen Allegory, she describes cooking for a meal and it's it's about an ageing mother who's coming to terms with the fact that nobody needs her anymore and that she's cooking a meal that no one will eat. And I'll just read a quote because it's just heartbreakingly beautiful.
1: Um, Mm, Please do.
0: As she chopped herbs and sliced asparagus and poured boiling water and added the magic dash of brandy to the mixed soft meat, she kept thinking, but not in a frantic way at all, about never seeing two more people again. All she wanted to do was make them full of her love, her food, but they could not swallow it. And I think, you know, the setting up of that domesticity Mm. here, you you can imagine standing there in that woman's shoes, doing those tasks and feeling that, I mean, that Mm. that heartbreaking feeling and, you know, and those moments in Tess's kitchen while she's cutting Mm. those mango cheeks or whatever, you really can see those women in their homes just doing their best in really, really difficult circumstances. And I think food can kind of put us there so quickly, like it it transports us there because we can all empathise. I think many of us can and it makes it so much more real.
1: Yeah, it does. And I'm wondering if it's because we're back to our idea about our senses being engaged in every way, but I wonder if that's also what um, it does so well that we can all, we all know what it's like to slurp a, you know, taste a mango. And I think um, actually in the end, Tess learns to ground herself through taste and the feel of food, doesn't she? Like Mm. I love that um, quote, I took my time sipping at coffee, dabbing up the last flakes of croissant with my forefinger. That was something I was gradually learning to do take time, give myself time, let the world settle around me and feel myself, if only for brief moments, at the centre of my own life. Yeah, I find that really poignant actually that, again, and I can taste that coffee I can smell that coffee and, mm. yeah, I thought that was very moving.
0: Me too and it's the first time I think in the book that we've had Tess on her own at a table, you know, She's always been with Poppy or with yes, Aman, like yeah. Aiden or whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I really enjoyed that visual image and reading those pages. And I thought, you know what, I think she's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> just, just from that cup we of coffee. Yeah, we can move on now. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's I, great. I have to thank you, Jermaine, for bringing this book into my world. I really enjoyed it. And I think I will definitely be back i will definitely read more nikki french books because i i've i thoroughly enjoyed this one
1: uh-huh. hmm. good oh i'm glad i'm glad it was a successful experiment <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so um now i think it might be time to shift gears into the next or the second part of our podcast where we're going to talk about um our read a letter um but first i would love us to hear from our very clever producer the woman who stitches these podcasts together and make them sound good and deals with all of our mishaps every now and then with turned off microphones and things Christy's <laughs> going to share with us a book that um within this genre that she enjoyed and that we might as well so thanks christy <laughs>
3: Yes, the old psychological thriller. How apt for Halloween time. And look, I can assure you, This week's recommendation is a rare one in this genre for me. I'm completely on board with Sophie here. Thrillers, horror, scary books do not button my coat. I think it has to do with being a journalist and perhaps dealing with the sinister side of life at times and not wanting to read or think about that when delving into the pages of a book. I like my escapism with a side of lovely and happy. So a very short but definitely not sweet recommendation this week and look I'll admit I wanted to see the film adaptation of this book so I made myself read the book first. Do you do that too? The film stars Emily Blunt and I was very keen to see her in this Yes, we're talking about The Girl on the Train. This book is the debut thriller novel from Paula Hawkins. It came out in about 2015. It involves the story of three women, their stories all intertwined. The first, though, really sets the scene here. The first woman becomes infatuated with a couple that she passes on her daily mundane train commute. The couple seem perfect to her from the safety of her train cabin, They're wealthy, well manicured and head over heels in love. Perhaps though, this is amplified by the fact she's still very devastated by her recent and very raw divorce. One day though, on the train, she sees something she can't forget or leave alone and she becomes caught up in what unfolds from here. It's dark, it's moody and I'll be honest, I found the book pretty hard to put down. Who knew? Have I been back to this genre though? absolutely not but with halloween the night of frights right around the corner maybe i should
0: thanks christy um thank you so much for sharing that and now um i'm gonna read out a letter if that's okay with you jameen and it's about change and instability and excitement all rolled into one okay she writes hey there Sophie and Jermaine I hope you're having a wonderful day I'm writing this letter the day after listening to and absolutely loving your podcast and immediately starting to devour the heart book of um, the audiobook of heartburn I'll finish by I'll finish it by tonight I'm loving the contrast of the dry humor through the harrowing events that Rachel is going through I relate so much because that's how I process the bad things in my life too. Anyway, I decided to write this letter because I've gone through so many changes over the past few months and I could use a nice book to listen to and a homely meal to cook. I have a beautiful daughter who will turn three in January, where does the time go, who I have mostly stayed at home with since she was born. Her dad and I separated in June after an emotionally tumultuous time together. I relate heavily to Rachel through Heartburn too for some vague context. But I have since found an amazing man who not only wants to give me all the good in the world, and more importantly, I have found love with myself. The major change that is coming up soon is that I'm about to start full time work. Having a life away from my baby is half exciting my soul and half crushing my heart, having to send her to daycare five days every week and not having care of her every second weekend. I don't know how I'll cope without my tiny bestie during the days, but I am so excited to start this new chapter of my career and life. Thank you for your podcast. I can't wait to listen every week and through, listen to all the audio books you can throw at me. Um, looking forward to the next one. Okay, Jermaine, what do you think?
1: It's really moving, that letter, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of change, a lot of difficult change and a lot of wonderful life-changing change as well. And I I think um, that is really hard to adjust to having to share your child and you know similar to what Tess goes through isn't having to find a way to share your child when you no longer live with Mm. their father and but and not that The Unheard is a a necessarily helpful book for (laughs) this letter um given she's looking for you know a homely read but um I do think Tess's story is also the story of managing to find her own voice and sense of self mm. in an extreme kind of way. Yeah. Um, and, and what's so relatable in that novel is, and what makes it so frightening, is it's so easy for us to all relate to the feeling of wanting to do whatever we could to protect those we love. Mm. And, and then the question of, well, would we go as far as Tess does? But I think our letter writer, even though she's asked for a nice book and homely meal, I'm... Thinking though, she probably still wants a book that asks her some difficult questions and that makes her think about what she's been through. Given she really enjoyed Heartburn, and she found it relatable, and she liked the humor in it too. So, thinking of all those things, I'm going to prescribe her a book by Meg Wolitzer. I don't know if you've read any Meg Wolitzer, Sophie. No. She, she wrote um, The Wife, which got turned into the movie.
0: I, I've not read it, but I've heard of it. Yep.
1: Yeah, with um, Glenn Close and so she's she writes a lot of, all her books really focus very heavily on women and their role and how that changes life transitions. So the book I'm prescribing is The Ten Year Nap mm-hmm. and it's it themes of um, motherhood and identity. So it's, it looks at four friends who've children are all 10 years old and they've all stayed home with their children and now suddenly the children don't need them as much and they're looking to go back into the workforce or to to find their lost way, whether it be through marriages sort of falling apart or, or careers being let go of. And it really questions, um, I guess it's a bit of a Generation X book because it questions um, our mothers who said we can do everything and have it all. Um, and then the backlash of actually we can't do everything so I want to do this well but then coming back to but actually I do need my own identity and my own um myself away from all those other mm. family responsibilities so I think um I hope it will kind of normalize all these massive changes she's been through and I think these changes have happened in such a small amount of time that she probably hasn't had a chance to um, really process what she's been through and I given heartburn resonated with her so recently I'm hoping this will too but this more about motherhood and returning to work and Meg wallett says a very funny writer as well not like as funny as Nora I have to say a bit more subtle humor but I think she'll still find some irony in there and like one um critic wrote which I have to read to you that she's able to nail an era or emotion snack or sexual position with deadpan accuracy she's the kind of writer who leaves you gulping with recognition oh wow so that's my suggestion Oh wow! Um, what about you, Sophie? What what's your homely meal going to be? Well, I'm definitely going to add that one to my
0: like growing tower of books on my pizza table that this <laughs> podcast is resulting in. But um, so I've been thinking about this a lot, and I really um, I loved this letter, and I really feel um, that 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 moment when you kind of do release your baby into you know the hands of daycare or preschool or whatever and it's it's a big mm. it's a big thing let alone all the other stuff that's going on in her life so I'm thinking that maybe you know at these times when big changes are happening in your family that's still quite new um, that it might be nice to bring in a few little rituals into your home you know create new traditions to, to help turn this change, From something that you're worried about into something that you're kind of celebrating. So perhaps, um, you know, Friday night or Saturday mornings, you might have a new tradition. Um, So you might do like a, um, make a big grazing platter on Friday nights and you might sit on the carpet and have it like a carpet picnic and watch a movie with your little girl and your partner, or maybe Thursday nights is your special night, or you go to the park um you know on a Saturday morning you have pancakes or whatever it might be um I think Friday nights is a really lovely one and you might make a special meal it could even be toast it doesn't have to be something fancy but maybe there's a special candle that's your little girl's job to light every Friday night and that signifies the end of the week we made it and we're going to sort of have this beautiful sort of special meal together and I think having that kind of um sense of tradition or or setting those sort of rituals around a meal um Can really be quite special and even now my kids um they think back to things we did when they were little and so fondly you know they really remember that and actually the recipe that I am going to recommend is something I used to make for my kids often in winter and I was talking to them about um how I was going to share it in this podcast and they're like oh my god why haven't you made that in such a long time you know I love that so much so before I share the recipe what do you think about that idea of bringing some new traditions in and, and using maybe a candle or a particular meal to kind of mark a moment that's celebrated rather than worried about
1: oh I think it's such a lovely idea I think it's a really special way to reframe a difficult situation and um it's actually brought to mind uh it's a a a different it's almost like you're creating a bridge isn't it the bridge Mm -hmm. between those two worlds but the bridge is actually something that's celebrated and enjoyed And um, it makes me think of, uh, yes, having my first baby and no longer being at work and feeling quite lonely. And um, a really close friend of mine had a baby three months older than me and she in exactly the same position. And I remember her suggesting we do Friday night drinks at the park. um, And I think the girls were six months old at the time. And so they had finger food and then we couldn't do Friday night drinks in town anymore with workmates but we could have our own Friday night drinks and it was a bridge from the work life um, that, that had ended for a while back into um, what we were actually you know, the mothering now and it was a really, I really feel, I feel very fondly when I look back at mm. those moments because it, it was actually a validation of what we'd lost and gained at the same time. It was that mm. making a point of marking at transitional time. Mm. So I think that's a lovely idea, what you're suggesting yeah. in a letter writer. Yeah,
0: I think, um, yeah, and you can take it in lots of different sorry, different de- directions. Um, but the recipe I was going to re- um, actually. <laughs> you, could you could do lots look- of different decorations yeah. though too. Well, you could, and actually I was just thinking as I was saying that, which is why I said <laughs> the word decoration, is that, I, you know, I think it's a shame that a lot of people, um, you know, if, if religion isn't a big part of your life, Um, you know in 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 lots of different faiths if friday nights various days of the week Mm. have their sort of um, symbolism but um, Mm. for a lot of other people it's christmas is the time that you you kind of bring out all these family traditions and decorations and things and candles and i kind of think wouldn't it be nice if we could bring those throughout the year in in our own personal way but I digress yeah anyway the recipe is um it's actually from my very first book A Local is Lovely which I put out a long time ago when my children were about this age so it was very much thinking more about food for little little people um but it's rhubarb soup and doll bread and it's a lovely old Danish recipe that my friend Christine gave mm. me and she says she used to make it for her boys on cold winter afternoons and I used to do the same for mine sometimes and basically it, it's you, you kind of poach rhubarb and you you in a lot of liquid and you take that juice into this beautiful clear bright pink tangy um juice essentially that we call soup and then you cut up rye bread mm. or a dark bread into little cubes and you fry them in a little bit of butter and sugar so they get kind of caramelised on each end and, and you drop the little cubes, doll bread, into the rhubarb soup and that's your um, little snack. Well, it's an after-school thing really. I mean, you could have it for dinner, no one's going to stop you, but it's just completely delightful and um, little girls particularly seem to love this, this idea of doll bread and this pink soup that they get to have for dinner. Mm. So I thought maybe that could be a sweet thing that you and your little girl could make um, at some point in the week as a special treat for you both, so that was my um, that was my thought something completely flippant but quite special at the same time
1: oh no I don't think that's flippant at all, and in fact you know homely meal was what she was wanting, which I think is another way of saying something that symbolizes home and togetherness and comfort and safety mm-hmm. and it's just it's so childlike it's beautiful to think i'm I'm thinking about fairy tales and children's stories or all yeah. the dollhouses and, and that kind of meal. There's something very nostalgic and comforting in that recipe. I think that's uh mm. It's a beautiful.
0: And it is it is really, really yummy as well. <laughs> um, so I think um, even though I always feel like I could just keep talking to you for a long, long time about all these things, it is time for us to wrap up. <laughs>
2: um,
0: but first we're going to hear from mm. Meredith who is has been such a huge supporter f- to our podcast. And Meredith is the woman behind mm. Yamba's Kitchen to Table. And I really, um, I'm not just saying this, I've been there myself, I've had lots of interactions with her and her beautiful warm team They know what they're talking about. They really, really want to make sure everyone has a good experience. So if you do need anything at all to do with your kitchen, please go and check out Kitchen to Table because um, they really are going to look after you. So thank you for your support, Kitchen to Table. Um, Please, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate um, a subscribe, a follow, share with a friend, and, um, and thank you for listening.
2: Mm,
1: and just a reminder that every episode we read out a letter. So, if anyone's listening and has uh, a, and wants a book prescription and a recipe recommendation to help with whatever's going on in life at the moment, uh, you can just email either Sophie or myself, and our email addresses are in the newsletter show notes. And uh, each letter we read out, the writer will receive a bottle of wine from Single Vineyard sellers. So. It's another hopefully added incentive to get you writing to us because it's so nice reading these letters isn't it sophie and oh amazing thinking about uh you know what what we can suggest mm. yeah
0: we really really do appreciate the letters um but actually i i was rabbiting on before but i forgot to pause so we could um hear from meredith with her um something to eat and something to read before we wrap up so thank you meredith
4: Hi, I'm Meredith from Kitchen to Table, a kitchen shop and cooking school in Yamba, northern New South Wales. I'm really excited to be sponsoring a second episode of Something to Eat and Something to Read. I've really enjoyed listening to the first two episodes, learning about new books to read, and the newsletter has been packed with fantastic recipes to cook. I really feel I'm among kindred spirits here. I'm kept very busy with the kitchen shop and cooking school, so when I have downtime, I really enjoy getting stuck into a good book. Or you'll find me in my kitchen at home, cooking sourdough bread or baking something delicious. The kitchen is my happy place and where I feel most comfortable. I really enjoy connecting with people through food. And for me, the cooking and sharing of food with friends and loved ones is an expression of care and love. A book that I read last year and have just reread is Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. I think I enjoyed it even more the second time around as I went deeper into the story. It's set in the 1950s and 60s and the main character Kaya is a barefoot and wild young girl who lives in the swamplands in North Carolina. When her family unit falls apart around her she survives against the odds. She lives a mostly solitary life as the locals in nearby Barkley Cove ostracise her for being different. They call her the Marsh Girl. On this note, this story does raise many challenging issues, including abandonment, domestic abuse, loneliness, growing up without a parent, illiteracy, racial segregation, and bullying. But on the flip side, there is so much to love about this book. For me, I was drawn in by the main character's natural affinity with the marshlands in which she lives, her connection to a place and to nature, her resilience to survive on her own, the power of learning, becoming a woman, falling in love, the kindness of strangers, All of this makes for a captivating story and gives the reader hope. Kaya has attended just one day of school, but this young girl learns valuable life skills when she's left to fend for herself. She studies the marsh in which she lives and begins to collect birds' nests, feathers, shells bones and the like, and begins to depict them in a journal with drawings and paintings. As she learns to read and write at the age of 14, through the kindness of a town boy, her collection matures and Kaya begins to write detailed descriptions of the specimens she has collected. In time her journals are published in a series of books, her love of the marsh becomes her life's work and with it an income far greater than she could ever have imagined. This enabled her to install some modern amenities in her home, including running water, a flush toilet, electricity and a new fridge. But true to her roots, she retained the wood stove in honour of her mother and in hope that one day her ma would return. As Kaya reaches womanhood, she is drawn at separate times to two young men from town. Both are intrigued by her wild natural beauty. Woven in amongst the story is the murder of one of these men and the townspeople suspect Kaya is the murderer. Could it be her? You'll have to read the book to find out. In most books I read I am drawn to any food references and throughout this book there are many references to southern food including grits, beans, fried chicken, homegrown vegetables, corn fritters, creamed corn, crab cakes and pecan pie. When I read about pecan pie I was like "Ooh, I have to make one. But sometimes I want something easier to make than a pie. So I got to thinking that perhaps a pecan pie blondie or slice may be just the thing to bake. So I'm sharing my recipe that has all the flavours of pecan pie that we know and love, but in a slice form that is quick and easy to bake. It begins with a vanilla shortcake base that's topped with a buttery, nutty maple topping, then baked until golden. I hope you enjoy it with a cuppa in a quiet nook in which to read your book. Just a reminder that I'll be hosting two Instagram Lives in the coming weeks where I'll cook the recipes I've shared in episodes two and three. Sophie will share the details in the newsletter. I look forward to meeting you there.
0: Thanks, Meredith. And thank you to Smith and Jones, our uh, beautiful songbirds, for letting us use your music in this podcast. We're going to hear from you soon on the pod. They're back on the road now that lockdown's up, or lifted in their area and touring and really busy. So keep an eye out for Smith and Jones in a hall, country hall near you or somewhere because they're very special live. I've seen them a few times. Jermaine, we'll see you soon. We're going to be we're coming up to a special Christmas episode, aren't we?
1: We are soon, scarily enough, <laughs> Christmas time. But yes, that will be great all right well i look forward to uh yeah talking more books and food with you then yeah thanks so
0: much domain and thank you to you for listening because we really um we hope that you find something in here that um tickles your fancy and gets you reading and cooking so thanks so much guys and we'll see you
2: soon